Baseball season is here at last, and the excitement continues all season long at DraftKings.com, the official daily fantasy partner of Major League Baseball. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitments. Why wait until the end of the season to claim victory when you can win huge cash every day? Hurry to DraftKings.com now and enter promo code ATHLETE to play for free. You could win part of the $300 million in prizes being awarded this season. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. There is nothing but the moment. Don't you waste it on regret. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Mario Batali is going to be here soon, which is exciting to me. I've spent a lot of time with Mario this past year, and each time I've come away at least a little more knowledgeable, a little more enlightened, and to be honest, a little more drunk. Saying no to Mario? Pretty much impossible. But what the TV doesn't show is how sharp Mario is, how finely tuned his antenna is, to pick up on everything going on around him. He's a world-class businessman who also happens to be in the conversation for best chef in the world. I mean, this is a guy who runs one of only six four-star restaurants in all of New York City, hosts his own television show, owns Italy, which is... I think it's the third most popular tourist destination in all of New York. It's like Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, place you can go to buy uh, really rare, amazing prosciutto. If you've ever heard Bill Simmons go on about what it's like to walk in Magic Johnson's wake, how much people love him, how even stars jockey to be around him to take a ride with him, change the body shape just a little bit, and you'll know what it's like to trail Mario. I've seen famous people from all walks of life jockey to be invited to one of Mario's private dinners, which go on in secret rooms under, above, or behind his restaurants, and which are always filled with artists, writers, musicians, and journalists, brought together around the best host in New York. One thing, though, in real life, Mario is always the MC. He's always getting you to reveal the best parts of yourself. And today, I'm just going to try to turn the tables a little bit, uh, if I can. So we have Mario Battalion here today. Yeah, he'll be here in a minute, I think, and uh, I'm excited to talk to him. Thank you for being here, and uh, when I come back, it'll be with Mario. Mario, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. I know that uh, your schedule is a busy one. I've often driven by the Brill Building and wondered just what goes on in here, oh, and yeah. now I see. Yeah, now you see it's me in a little booth. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what's happening. It's a great coffee machine down the hall. I don't know if you've noticed. You said it's Keurig coffee. Keurig is spectacular. Well, good. You have, so you have your cup. I am caffeinated it, up. If I remember right, you like it sweet and light. Yes, sir. I've now, I think we've now informed the podcasting audience of how Just Mario how my Vitale. coffee comes in a cup. So, <laughs> good. <clears throat> so, um, Mario, you know, as I, I told you a little bit, what I'm really interested in is these moments in people's lives where everything's on the table, where it can go one way or another in real inflection points. And... I think something that that happened to you that's really, um, you know, a watershed thing is in 1999, you had uh, a brain aneurysm, right? Correcto. And most people, it seems to me, when something like that happens, might make the choice to live conservatively, Mm -hmm. to be scared. I mean, how did you process it? What did you What did you take? For that time, you had how many restaurants? Two? Uh, I was in the middle of opening my second restaurant. No, my third, actually, because Poe had already opened, right. and we had Babo, and it was the middle of opening Lupa, the, the night of the opening wow. was when I had it. And uh, we were trying to make sure the dishwasher was going to run because we were going to do a party for my partner, Jason Denton, at that time, who was our third partner along with Joe Bastianich, and his wedding party was going to be at the opening night. And I'm looking over the dishwasher, and the guy's like saying, da, 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 you know, don't make it. Here's how you turn it on. Here's how you turn it off. Here's how you run it. And all of a sudden, everything sounded like he was talking like this. Wow. And I'm like, uh-huh. And then it cleared back up, and I could hear it a little bit like that. And I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, acid flashback? I don't right. know. I've seen, I've had weird things happen right. to me. You've seen how many Grateful Dead right. shows? I've seen 150 Grateful Dead shows. You know, I've seen lights change and move things around. So I just said, let me step outside. And I stepped outside, and it kind of went away, but I started to get a headache. And after about four or five hours, I realized maybe I should go to the hospital or the doctor. So it was four or five hours of feeling all sorts of different weird stuff. It kind of went away, really. I mean, when, I, when, when, when the noise, when, when the voice went like this, I also heard a whoosh, whoosh, like a flushing tube of water was going somewhere. And I thought, well, that must be the dishwasher. 
And I realized maybe it was just something on my audio canal. I'm not sure what it was in the brain, but uh, anyway, it, it didn't. It didn't occur to me that something was viciously wrong. It just felt mm, that's a little weird. Let me see what's going on. So a couple hours later, I went over to the pharmacy and I said, "Yeah, does this sound like any symptom to you?" And they said, "No, maybe you should just take some aspirin," which would have been the death march because that would have thinned my blood, which had immediately clawed it a little bit, which is why I lived. You lived in a way because you didn't take aspirin for the headache. Right. And because I wasn't taking aspirin as a lot of people do at our age just to kind of thin their blood a little bit. It was thick enough that it clotted almost instantaneously, according to the doctors. I didn't know this at the time because I didn't know what had happened. Right. And were you talking to people? Like, oh, yeah. I'm saying, you know, what do you think? This is weird. I just had that weird sensation. And now I kind of have a headache in the back of the top of my spine. But were people, were guests coming in? No, the, I, was... I, I walked out uh, before the guests had just got there, and I went off with my pastry chef, Gina De Palma, and the executive chef of Babo, Andy Nusser. And we just decided to take a little walk to see how it felt. And they were going to walk me home, which is like 20 blocks, not very far. And we got kind of close to the house. And I said, you know, there's a hospital across the street from where we live called Cabrini, which is kind of a... A smaller, you know, not really tech-savvy hospital, but a hospital nonetheless. Right, not where some of the people who come to your restaurants would send you to right, go, exactly. necessarily. It's not like the uh, Amman Resort of the right. Hospital for Special Surgeries that I've subsequently yeah. discovered. It's not the 14th right. floor over exactly. at New York Hospital. Right, yeah. so uh, I went in there, and, you know, it was a Friday or a Saturday night, if I recall, and, uh, you know, it was the summer. And, you know, the summer Friday night crowd was in there, people who'd been shot, people who'd been this, whatever. So I'm sitting in emergency waiting to, you know, get these things checked out. And I'm kind of relaxed and resting. I think by 2 o'clock they took a little CAT scan or uh, some kind of X-ray. And you could see what looked like a big, giant white golf ball in the middle of my head. And they said, this is something we can't help you with. We're going to have to transfer you. Immediately they said that. Immediately. And did you have the sense at that point this could be something really severe? Still no. Still, I'm pretty sure there's just a golf ball in my head. I'm not really sure what's going on here. There, I mean, you know, I don't remember it that clearly because it was still kind of surreal. Sure, and but because I you remember, had blood rushing all over right, your exactly. brain. I'm not bleeding, right? I'm not cut. Uh, the people around me look like they're in much worse situation than I am. So sure. I'm figuring, out, you know, they're, they're not running around. They're not putting me on an IV. They're not rushing me anywhere. Did they ambulance you over to the well, other place? Well, they put me in a truck of some court that right. had painting like an ambulance, but it wasn't so much an ambulance. And I and they checked me into this other hotel, I mean hotel, this other hospital, and I kind of dozed off for the night and woke up in the morning, and there's a doctor that looks a little bit like uh, Harrison Ford. Right. I immediately believe him. He's, he looks like Harrison Ford. Sure. Uh, he says, you know, listen, here's the story. You had a cerebral aneurysm, and you're going to have to, we're going to have to operate on you. I'd like to do it in the next two hours. I'm like, eh, maybe I should call my wife. Had you not checked? I, I had ask, not called my wife. You yet. hadn't checked in at all. Well, home. no, my wife had taken the kids, and in that time, there was a time uh, where they would go up on Friday morning, go up to our house in upstate New York, and come back on Monday. Sure, because you're working those right. crazy I'm chef hours, owner so they, restaurant. They hours. couldn't see me anyway. They'd see me when I woke up a little bit, but then I'd go straight to work. So they were gone. So I called her, you know, like ten in the morning or nine in the morning. I said, "Honey," she said, "What happened?" I said, "Nah, maybe she talked to this doctor." I handed the doctor. He gives her the whole story. She gets back on the line, crying, you know, a little nervous. Um, sure, and. Uh, she starts calling around like she didn't want the she wanted a second opinion. She's a born New Yorker. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. right. A New Yorker. You, right. you started at Cabrini is where right. the exactly. initial diagnosis. We've made our first step, but it wasn't maybe our last step. So she calls around. She says, listen, don't operate yet. Let me just get my feet on the ground and get back to you. After she called a bunch of our friends in the business, I mean, in the health business, yes. including my regular doctor, yes. Dr. Charles Steinberg, they assessed that there was a couple of guys. They called around. One guy was out of vacation. I think the number two guy was a guy named Michael Levine, and he was at a different hospital. And... Uh, she called back and said, listen, we're going to move him. And this is probably by the end of that day, probably 9 or 10 at night it took us to figure this out. So you're living with an aneurysm for 20, uh, like a burst aneurysm? For Up to 24 hours 24 right now, hours. at this point, right? So then uh, she drives down, she comes in, and uh, we make the decision. She talked to a bunch of other people. We decided to go to find Dr. Michael Levine. Uh, we didn't make this decision until it was in the late... Maybe it was the late afternoon or the early evening. Maybe she'd be able to give you a right example. But I know for a fact that the, the other doctor felt scorned and said, you have to leave right now. Because right. I'm not going to have you on my watch and think you're going to die when this could go at any time. But, you know, I just want you to know we have to get you out of here right now. So it's the middle of the night. And all I said to my wife, I said, please don't move me. Just don't make me move. Because at this point, you could feel in your head it was like a thousand um, pop bottle tops were on loose strings and when you shook my head I could feel it a little bit you could like, you could yeah. sense to yourself and there was something a little odd could you tell your thought because you know uh, was your thought process a little fuzzy probably probably a little uh, that's a very spotty stuff I remember getting in the ambulance going to the next place and kind of taking a little rest and the next morning the doctor comes in and that's when the operation was. they do the operation 
It started out that it was going to be four. I believe it was eight and a half. So you have an eight and a half hour operation, yeah. 1999 brain surgery. Yeah. Aneurysm. You were the. T- I mean, you were uh, like the fastest rising chef and restaurant owner in Manhattan at that time. I was in the top ten. Let's put it I that mean, way. There was a lot of guys rocking and rolling. Pretty right. Good there was at that there was time. a lot of very interesting chefs, young, doing the entrepreneurial dance at that point, and we were involved in it. It was a good time. And when you uh, recovered, so how long did it take you to recover to to really get back to feeling like? the person you, you, you are, you were. Well, that's a question. <laughs> Do you feel you ever got all the well, way? Do you feel I, you got all the way back? I, I think so. I mean, you know, you evolve over, you know, it's, it's been a long time. It's been 99, like 15 years. Yeah. Right? Um, first, we get me, I mean, I'm out of the hospital in two days. We go home. They mm-hmm. had, we had just moved. So we moved again quickly into a rental because I didn't want to live through the uh, renovation. So we're in a rental across the street from our house. We had a nice Barca lounger for me. Uh, I'm a little weird. I mean, I'm a little snippy. Like, you know, I, I could tell I was snippy. I thought it was because the pain was bothering me. But I, I, I kind of got over the snippy. What I'll never forget is that I was watching more TV than, than ever because I didn't have anything to do. And I really wasn't supposed to go outside and move around a lot. I was just letting it settle and see what happened. I remember thinking that the funniest TV show of all time was Dharma and Great. <laughs> That's really great. And my wife's like, I think he's really messed up. <laughs> does, does Jenna Elfman have a table anytime she anytime wants in your she, joints? Well, she always would have anyway. Right. But it was just like I look back at that show and I'm like, I wonder what I thought was funny. That's great. Because it was kind of funny, but it was like I'm cracking up. I'm telling everyone they got to come in and check out this show. And it was just my favorite show. I, well, time. yeah, that's like when you have a fever and you're watching uh, Oprah and just weeping. I mean, that's right, what happens exactly, to me. If I'm right. sick and I'm watching Oprah, similar, I weep. Similar emotional proximity to the edge. And you get yourself, so six weeks you're back. Two weeks I'm back at work. Back at work, two weeks after yeah. an aneurysm. And did you ever have a moment of reevaluating or not? The, the big thing was to go in to the surgeon surgeon's office two weeks later when he kind of gives you the write-off and says, yeah, I think you're all right. And, I, and, and, the, and the questions at that point are, was this a lifestyle problem? He said, no, this is congenital. Was there something I should do different? He said, you shouldn't smoke. But I think he says that to everybody that walks in. Right, who office. should smoke? Right, exactly. Who's he going to tell? So like, all right. So there was no more smoking, all right? Uh, right. Um, he said, uh, I said, well, what should I do? I mean, he said, you'll come back in a year, but this is something that is actually a blessing for your family because these are so rare. I think it's one in 500,000 or some number that I don't quote me on that. But he said, because you've had one, your kids and your wife are never going to have one. I'm like, well, I'm glad I took one for the team. Yeah, because statistically, provided that it wasn't, there wasn't a field of them. Sure. When he was in there doing the operation, he looked around, and there wasn't a bunch of them. So it wasn't like a genetic fault. It was just this a, one... a congenital flaw. Right. And it was this one little burst in the you know thing that looks a little bit like an inner tube on a tire. It looked a little bit inflated, and then eventually it pops because the wall is... Integrity has been challenged because it's thinner. Right. So you have one. You could have them, and other people I've known who've had them that had a series of them in their mind, and they had to go in and clamp them, and then they had to look in their children to see if that was the situation. Oh, really? And if, it it was was... Gene- if it was genetically passed down. Right. And and their feeling was that it wasn't because there was only one. So it was an anomaly. So you knew, okay, this isn't something that's going to affect my family. Right. I have this one. Right. But many people, it seems to me many people, when they have that kind of brush with mortality, which was a real brush with mortality. Well, like, that, that was what they really wanted to convince me. They wanted me to know how lucky I was and how, in fact, of the odds of uh, of 100 people having these 50 die immediately. And right. of the remaining 50, 40 have some symptom lagging for the rest of their life, very much like a stroke or a post-heart attack or something like that. Of the remaining 10, only five really have normal lives. Right. And I said, well, I can't be that part. I'm never going to have a normal life. I never had a normal Normal life. life. But they they wanted to impress upon me. And and, and to this day, it's still, I, I never felt, oh, my God, how lucky I am. It was just like, that's the cards. Like, I got those cards. So, however it happened, it it played out as best it could, but it never occurred to me that it might have turned out any other way. So, it's not all of a sudden I'm praying or I'm headed right. to, you know, Mecca. You know, I, I felt very good. Uh, I, I felt very good about how I'd lived my life. I didn't feel that I'd made any big categorical mistakes. There wasn't anything I could fix because of this. So it didn't change me that much. But I certainly have always been amongst the people that mo- felt mo- most blessed anyway. Like, I've always smiled to people who say, man, that's good. You are, you're working really hard. I said, you know what? I'm working really hard, but I'm also incredibly lucky. And I've never, ever 
discounted, pure luck being on your side. And I'm quite convinced that you can make your own luck a little bit, but you still need good luck. And, and that it's kind of a circle at that point. So it didn't change me and make me go to mass any more often or, or read more spiritual poetry or listen to Coltrane differently. It just, it, I woke up a little bit, but I didn't change much. Right. So, which is, which is an, I think, an, an anomaly also. Right. Because uh, of those 10 people who live without any residual effects, effects, I would bet one or two don't view that as such a seminal moment, um, almost like a fulcrum. Uh, whereas you, it seems that you're saying it didn't change much. Like, well, you know what? Did it change your... Go ahead. It, what it might have done is it might have pushed me to take a little bit more risk. That's what I want to know. I think because at that point, we only had three restaurants. Now we have 25. So maybe it pushed me faster down the hill of removing these obstacles from continued growth. Now, what I've always said about the reason I've opened more restaurants, it wasn't because I had some modus, some giant operative idea to take over the world. It was more the reason we open new restaurants is because we have a sous chef, a number two, who is so talented that soon enough, he or she is going to leave the fold and go work for somebody else. And my point was always, and our point amongst my partner, Joe and I, I've always thought, listen, why, why let them go work for Danny Meyer or Drew Nieperon? That we should build them a restaurant and let them operate it like they would be operating with us. And so they get a piece of the equity or the or the share of the profits or the whatever so that they operate it like someone who's totally committed to that restaurant like we always feel and that's what we have so we've gone further down but i would say that we've mitigated a lot of the risk by including a lot of the people i think the biggest lesson i can tell to to mba students that come and want me to talk about my massive business plan which does not exist right it, it i say the most important the two most important things are first of all you don't have to make all the money yourself and the moment you think you have to make all the money yourself is the moment you're just an idiot and a toad. And also, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room at every minute of the day. And as long as you realize that, that frees you to have really good people working for you and even doing things that you're not capable of doing, and you let them do it. And that's maybe the twist that happened because of this transition. You know what I mean? I don't know that I thought that before that, but I certainly come to accept that now. And that's a big part of our business plan. Well, sure. Uh, that makes total sense to me that uh, whereas some people might become more conservative and say, I don't want to take any chances, for you it flipped. And right. you said, well, I've already been as close to the brink. Right. I'm almost dead already. <laughs> How bad can it get? Right. Or like the Dennis Johnson already dead. Right. You're, in your mind, already dead. I may as well go for it right. now. But it wasn't so categorical. It wasn't like, oh my God, that's it. I'm I'm going down the hill. I'm jumping on a motorcycle. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna jump across the raging Ganges River and do this or that. Like I still am. I wouldn't call myself conservative risk taker. We've gone into risks, but I don't look at it fearlessly. I just that's what I'm doing. Like it's I have to continue. I'm not stopping. Is my point. Now a good friend of of my family's. Uh, is a guy named Bill Berry, who's the drummer for R.E.M. Yes. He had an aneurysm yes. and quit the band that day and has been farming successfully and developing a great golf game ever since. And I might argue that he is as successful as the rest of the band, if not just a little bit more, because he is completely happy. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's fascinating that they always talked about how important he was to them, and it turned out to be true. It's clear. He stayed in the band. I mean, he was. I mean, he wasn't a performing member of the band, but he was still in the band. I mean, the whole time in their minds. Right, because REM is those, those four, four guys. guys. I mean, you and I are tremendous uh, REM geeks, exactly. and I don't want to get lost in the in the weeds on right. this. But it. But now, you and Bill, uh, do you talk? Did you I've, talk I've, about the aneurysm? We like, talked. I, I've only really spent a little time with him because he doesn't come to New York very often. But I met him at a couple of uh, events, and we talked just a little bit about it because neither of us really wanted to talk too much about it at that event. It was a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame something or other. I don't remember exactly what it was. And I didn't get very much of a chance to talk to him because he's a busy guy, and, you know, I, I just – I'm, I'm right. a genuflecting fan of the band as well as a good family friend of Michael and and Mike, Mike, Mike Mills. Right. That that makes sense. I, I – uh, there's a question I, I wanted to uh, ask you about Michael and about you know your relationship with a bunch of these amazing people, uh, and I, we might as well get to it now since since you brought it up. Which is, you said to me one night we were, we were having dinner, and, and you said, you know, the thing about my relationship with these guys is I love their work, they like what I do, and we never talk about either of those things. Right. Tell me a little bit about that. Well. Uh, for me, like there's a, there's a couple of musicians or artists or 
or performers or politicians who who I consider to be in such a top shelf realm of fanhood that I could probably never have a conversation with him. For example, David Bowie. For example, Robert Fripp. For, for example, Brian Eno. There are people whose work was so much a part of my fabric as I was growing up that, that I, I would be a blathering idiot or, or I would feel trite to have a, hey, what do you think about the football game conversation with them? Right. Because I consider their music to be such an influential part of my growth in expression and understanding that they're too close to the inside of my psyche to talk to them. A guy like Bono or a guy like Michael Stipe, whose music I've always held that close to my heart, but it was less cerebral. It was more, this is, this is the, the soundtrack to the happy moments of my life, not my introspection, but my shared moments. So I could meet someone like Bono or Michael Stipe or, or Adam Levine and talk to them, but I wouldn't say, it wouldn't go beyond by, I'm a great fan of your work. It would be more like, let's discuss the scallops and the dish, because they're as intrigued by what I'm doing, and they appreciate my art. So our conversation was almost was starting eye to eye, even though I never really thought I could stand up next to them. Right. That makes that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, it's like I shook Bob Dylan's hand once, and I didn't. There was nothing more I want out of right. that exchange. There's no way. Uh, it's completely inarticulable to try right. to say to him. It's to bow. It's really you just bow and say, "Well played, Dylan." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's all you can say. <laughs> but it seems to me like you. Um, because you're this, you know, a chef uh, of the of the highest level and also a celebrated p- person that you try, um, you know, in, in your position as one of those people to also keep the conversation off of your work so that you're not in 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 receipt all the time of right. that kind of fawning. And it's not even even when it's genuine and not, obs- you know, not obsequious or or fawning. It, it's almost like you appreciate hearing. It's great that you like what I do. Right. What else can we talk about? Right, but also and when we when we talk about a great dish of of spaghetti with black truffles, if we're going to talk about it, I'm not talking about the cooking time of the spaghetti. I'm talking about where we got the truffles. Yes. That the search for the greatness in the dish wasn't a technical aspect. It was more in the knowledge of the geospecificity of the deliciousness of this particular thing, which is an intellectual thing that we can share. It's not, yes. let me show you about this. It's more like, you know, have you ever been to Umbria? And have you wandered in the hill behind Cadel whatever? And have you ever seen where the black birds sing from the top part of the tree? It's, that's the tree. And then we have a shared interest and a shared voyage. And the experience that I'm sharing isn't me showing them how I do something. It's more like, look at what we could do together. Almost like if Michael took you driving in the car where he uh, remembered something from his childhood that led to you are the everything. Right. Where you're not saying to him, oh, I remember who I was, where he's... He's bringing right. you into... We're, we're driving through Georgia, and this is the river or the lake where he took off his shirt and night swimming. Night swimming. Like, you know, like that song is so important. But he's not telling me the craft of that song. It's more where the song came from in a way that I might find that song. And in that way, and that's, I think, I don't think that this is a superior intellectual discussion. I think this is how true friends eventually communicate, is that they talk about stuff that they know about, but they also move on to the speculation about how that shared something becomes something shared again. And that's where, that's where a conversation becomes so juicy, because you're getting something from it. You're not just talking, you know what I mean? And, it's, and as a sponge, I'm always listening, and I'm listening to the nuance and the cadence of the words, particularly of the song people, because I love the way they talk, because I love the way they sing. And I love the way they sing because I love the way of their, the content of their language and the way that it's woven in with the melody. And for me, that is like, just listening, like I know a guy named Jim Harrison who writes these really magnificent uh, he, books. He's an incredible writer. And yeah. you sit with him and you hear Brown Dog. You hear his characters come to life and, and it's him and his ability to translate that every man's language to something more superior, something more thoughtful, to something that evokes the sound of the way the birds sound over the rushing brook when he's camping somewhere thinking about what he's going to eat. That is so powerful to me. And when I when I get that, when I'm in the conversation with someone like this, it is such a great feeling. And hopefully they're feeling something about that in, in the way that I'm talking about it. Well, I'm sure I'm sure that they are. Um, because you're grasping it in all, all these ways, and because you're searching. in the way that they're hoping, I think is way, is the way it's going to be grasped. And because, to me, because you're searching for it, right? right. You're you're not complacently uh, de- being declaring this is where I this is this is what this is. You're kind of engaging, right? Well, because 
I hope. And in the same way, when I make a really good dish and someone just doesn't just say, yeah, this is really delicious, they say, they get excited. Like, this is so good. This is something that reminds me of my grandma's dish, or this is something that reminds me of a place that I was, or this is just so satisfying right now. In that same way, when I listen to their music, I listen to it in a full submission form. And I, I'm... I'm a hell of an air guitar player, and I think it's kind of embarrassing probably to some people. But when I'm listening to a song, and I and one of the things we don't do is when an artist is in the house, we never play their music. You don't play their no, music. No, I would never play their music because it's kind of like they're like, oh, my God, what the hell is he doing here? But every now and then it'll say uh, it'll be the moment to play an R.E.M. song in front of Michael Stipe. And I say, can I play blah, blah, and he's like, yeah, whatever, I don't give a shit. And, and, I, and I do the air guitar, and I sing it with him just as loud as I possibly can. Like, I give that whole song everything I have. And I, I think when someone sees you give it up for their art, it's very satisfying and assuring that that, that art has found a place to live. Yeah, yes. When you, uh, when you surrender to it and it seems... Completely. Complete surrender and without self-consciousness. Right, exactly. I may, be, not... I may be two wavelengths off my tone, but when I'm singing with Bono and he's sitting there looking at me and I'm like... <laughs> I'm like letting it out, man, and he knows it. And I think he appreciates that more than if I was on perfect pitch. Oh, I'm yeah. Well, listen. I mean, he's not always on perfect well, pitch. And he's one of the greatest. As far as I am, he is. So that's no, other. I, I love uh, right. these are. And we grew up listening to the same. Right. You're a couple years older than me, but right. the same bands. When when uh, and it's interesting about trying to understand REM songs because to me, I would never. Sh I have no idea if what <clears> I feel <throat> about those songs is what he intended. And what Peter and my and Mike intended, right? right? I just know they have this incredibly deep sense meaning for me, as I'm I'm sure that that you well, feel that way. but I, but you're not wrong in any way. Like I don't think when they write a song, they they are thinking, "Gee, I hope they cry here and they sob here and they breathe like that here." They're like, "Gee, I hope they get this somehow." And if you got it on any term, you got it. And, you know, you listen to Bukowski. How could you possibly take one line, I mean, one word per line, seven lines in a row, 15 times repeated? And who knows what he meant? Maybe I read it fast. Maybe I read it like it was one sentence. But I got it. You know, I felt it. And, and we never discussed it because I only met Bukowski once. But just seeing him talk in, in person was to understand all of the cadence of all of the words you ever read by him. And And although it didn't put me any closer to understanding it in the way that maybe he intended it, it was clear that I got something out of it. And seeing him in person do it was just another remarkable addition to that kind of feeling that, wow, for me, appreciating great music, art, food, anything, car design, is is to, to look at it and taste it and hear it. Like, I, I taste things that aren't necessarily I'm putting in my mouth, and I hear things that aren't aren't necessarily being played over the airs or, or over the air. There, there are ways to appreciate form that are visceral and not necessarily that you can't put them in the category of I'm listening to this or I'm smelling this or I'm tasting that. I am it right now, and that's when it hits me so hard. And don't you think that's part of why you're so good at what you do? Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope whatever adds up. I, I think it's because of my full abandon when I give up to a linguine with clams. I mean, right. like, I am just all about it. And I'm not trying to overthink it. It's just clams and a little garlic and some white wine and a little butter and some parsley and maybe some hot chili flakes. And, and, and it's not like it's complicated, but when it's right, you know it. And and and. In that same sense, when I'm listening to something that I know is right or looking at something that I know is right, I, I, I appreciate it on such a level. And I'm sometimes capable of expressing it to them how good it makes me feel. And that, that must be satisfying. Well, you must know that it's satisfying because I've watched you watch people get it when they've eaten right. your food. Right. And I've seen and – it, and it's great because – Nobody's without ego and nobody as successful as you is without any ego at all. But that's not what you're getting the charge from. Right. You're getting the charge from watching this thing that you threw everything into deliver to somebody. Right. And it's more the share than the give. That, like, I'm yeah. not, I, I, all right, I'm giving, but whatever. It's the shared joy that when it's being consumed that I can feel it and they can feel it. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about this, which is you are uh, you're a pleasure seeker. And I don't on know on every level. You, yes, and I've watched it. Whether you're playing golf in the pouring rain, having a, a summer shandy in the afternoon, or I've seen you get tremendous pleasure out of watching other people have pleasure. Right? Has that all, 
like, when did that click in? For, it's a very advanced thing. Like, when did that click in for you? Were you a kid when you started realizing that joy for you was shared joy? I would say, I mean, I grew up in a family that was very much involved in food. And from my grandma to my, my grandma and grandpa on both sides, they were cooks and they were foragers. And, and it, was, it was part of our family. It wasn't like sacred Alice Waters and Thomas Keller. Not that either of those are bad examples because they are the top of the field, of sure. the art of the field. But, like, we just did it because that's what we did. We grew up on the West Coast and, like, you picked blackberries because they were free. It wasn't that we had a sense of duty that we had to go relieve the plants of their heavy-weighted blackberries. And it wasn't that, oh, my God, we're not going to make the rent. We better go pick blackberries. But it was because blackberries were free and that was the maximum expression of that delicious delicious lower part of Dash Point Road. Like, right. you know, you pull off in your yellow station wagon and there's a blackberry bush. And you pick them and you come back and you make the jam and the pie. And, and watching my grandma cook dinner for us selflessly and, and, and loving it, her, her, her portion was always the smallest. And her wine always had water in it. But because she so enjoyed the actual steps of production, I always thought, well, geez, she must be done and now it's time to relax. But her greatest time was bringing out the next course. And you're like, what the f***, grandma? We just had ravioli, and she brings out three different kinds of roasts. And we're like, we're, you know, we were regular Italian-American kids. So after pasta, we thought we were done a lot of the time, and it never occurred to us that we weren't. It was like every time she brought out the roast, we're like, what the f*** is that, Grandma? <laughs> and it's like, this is a secondo, or this is the roasted plate. And you're like, what? All right, sure. And she would take, you know, a tiniest little sliver and then just watch everybody. And, you know, her chit-chat and everything was, she was perceiving, her, her love was there on the plate, and her love was repaid just because we were hungry and loved everything she made. So I saw that, and whether it was conscious or not, in the same sense, my mom and my dad were the same way. They were cooks, like they cooked. And although you couldn't, my dad worked for Boeing, my mom was a registered nurse, you, 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 wouldn't, you would rarely hear them come back and talk about a glitch in the, in the production schedule of a 757. Right. That wasn't a share in that, that part of their life. It wasn't like it was taboo, it was just it didn't come up very much. But certainly dinner was talked about, and what we as kids did. And you could just see that the share was a common joyous thing and it was it, it wasn't so much about give and then look what I did it was more like hey, it's just out there and it felt good and then you know there was the same tumult in every family as there was it wasn't like we were sacred and didn't hate each other for 10 minutes every couple of hours or every day but it was just it was a the, our experience was always that the shared was always the good part we were very lucky in that way but but it's not only about food for you this thing like I've noticed that you love putting people together and you can step back and let them and i've i've looked over it at your face because you know uh, as a writer i'm always like stepping back and watching a little bit and i've watched you get and it's not about giving i've watched you make a connection between people or surprise someone in some way and you just delight in it and were you the kid i mean as a as a as a kid as a teenager when you're you know, I guess your family moved to Europe at, at a young age. 75, night, I was 15. I mean, was that part of how you... So you were 15 when you moved... Was that a part of how you made friends by... I mean, was this always a part of your life? Because most people don't operate the way you operate. Well, I, I don't I don't know. Um, in the high school time, I mean, we moved to a high school where my senior graduating class was less than 50 people. So we knew everyone in the school. Right. And we would go out, and although it was a very divisive time... Not because of Franco, not because of Suarez, but because disco and rock and roll were battling yeah. those years. And I had friends who were disco people, and I had friends, mostly that I felt associated with, that were more listening to Allman Brothers and Ted Nugent and the Rolling Stones. So we would go out as a group because if there's only 50 people in your class, odds are on any given Friday night, there were 25 of us at the same place. But even then, did you feel like it's my responsibility to make everybody have a great time? No. Or did that happen later? And I think that happened later. At that point, I was just trying to figure out whether it was okay just to be a rock and roll guy. Was there better looking girls on the disco team this year? Sure. And should <laughs> I be listening to this crap? Should I be pretending <laughs> I like this just because of there might be some residual upside to this? And I decided there wasn't. So, it was rock and roll or nothing. So screwed but, disco. Exactly, I just couldn't take Donna Summer, and even if there was the promise of Olivia Newton-John oh. waiting for me naked. It just was not going to happen. <laughs> so I, I realized there were things you could compromise on and not, but then I got to college and you know i'm a social guy i'd never been to, on the east coast i'd never been east of idaho i moved to new jersey new brunswick new jersey and i made a lot of friends but so did a lot of other people so i don't, I don't think i had any gift or anything at this point in my life i'm lucky enough to have always kept a very vast 
group of varied kinds of friends. Yes. And it gives me great joy to bring someone from the music industry and someone from the construction industry into the same table where no one feels that they're one up or one down from each other. And you might have a very interesting conversation about something that doesn't involve what you do for a job. And that's where it's exciting to me because the conversation may involve the politics or art or the Olympics or whatever's going on. Yes. And it just kind of flows naturally. And if I have to drop a grenade in there every now and then to keep the thing going, I do that. But it's it's not like I'm consciously thinking time for a grenade. It's more like, what am I going to do now? This conversation looks like it's a little flat. Let me see if I can energize it a little bit. And that's generally involving people's passions, something they're either really happy or really angry about. And, and bringing that little politics in allows them to kind of wave their flag a little bit. And it makes it everyone else in the table realizes. And I like small tables. I like 10 or less. 10 people you can have a great conversation with at the table. Any more than that, and it's kind of like it splinters up into a bunch of different parties. And I'm all right with that. But I like to curate the group. And then, and I often don't necessarily feel the need to participate. Maybe I'm making sure the wine glasses are full, or maybe I'm just turning the music or changing it. But I enjoy the fact that it's existing. Yes. That vibe, that, that movement, that very special, unique group of people together for that one dinner or maybe five dinners. Who knows? Well, yeah. When, and, and when you say you drop a, a grenade sometimes and you're o- aware of it, it's an amazing, uh, it's a really fascinating skill. You know, one night uh, it ended up because uh, you had another, a screenwriter director and, and, and me there together. Mm-hmm. And I think because he was going to come the next night, but I had to go to Europe. So you ended up with two people who worked similar in similar fields, and, uh, similar fields. And for a second, he and I started talking about Hollywood. And from across the room, you went, oh, is that Hollywood conversation going on? And both of us cracked up because, you know, for just even, I would say three minutes, maybe there was this sense of it wasn't even a sense of real exclusion. But it was... You were talking about things no one else could get involved in. Right. And Or they couldn't in the way that we were... Right. Talk about it. And I didn't disdain your joy. It was just like, but we're a group of ten. Let's talk about no, something we was, can all talk about. It was great. And it shows this, uh, uh, to me, this um, this awareness you have of the chemistry in a room. And I, I, I've, I've wondered, um, in the time that you and I have come to, to know one another, you have this incredible love for, for food... But you have all these other skill sets. And I don't know if you developed them in service of food because it was sort of like what was necessary to get your vision across. Or if you always had these things and the food became just a vehicle to exercise all the, all the rest of this. Ah, that's, a, that's a chicken and an egg question, my friend. I would say that it probably developed at the same time that I became very comfortable and happy with my technical ability as a restaurateur. I also, as a restaurateur, became socially available to make sure that the evening was fun outside of the food. And I don't know if you remember how Baba opened, but we were the kind of, we were the first in the time, and this is 1998, we were the first in time that really had the intention of getting a three-star New York Times review while playing Bob Marley and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And that was a categorical decision Joe and I made to make sure that this felt like a grown-up restaurant that was still our, you know, at that point I was 38 and Joe was probably 31. We were still in our 30s, and it was very important for us that that experience didn't become the old guard. We wanted it to be a rock and roll style restaurant, and we were downtown, and and subsequently a lot of people play a lot of really loud music, and often it's off, it it, it takes it to the wrong level. You mean at other, at, at, at other, other restaurants, right, yeah. exactly. And I don't think we were the first people to play rock and roll in a fine dining restaurant. It was just at that time, it was a little bit of a departure to have evolve food and a, a specific point of view in the music that was not necessarily so prevalent. And that was all that was all conscious on, on your part and Joe's part. Right. We were going to create something that we want to be at. That was the most important thing. It was like we go to all these other restaurants and there were so many great restaurants at the time, a lot of which are a lot of whom have left the field. But we just said, look, what about this? We like this. We like that. We like this kind of price point. We like the lighting like this. We love this townhouse feel because it feels clubby, but we don't want it to be too clubby like on the Upper East Side. We want to have music. Yes, let's get really loud speakers so we can really crank it if we feel like it, but we don't have to play it loud all the time. Like there's still Dave Brubeck in the first turn because in all honesty, if you sit there and listen to music for six hours that loud, you're exhausted physically. Right exhausted the staff would be exhausted so we it's a build and you know at a certain point at like 9 30 it's kind of at its apex and then it kind of backs down a little bit near the end or not so much you know you never see but the music was definitely one of the ingredients in the soup that was babo at that time 
And, and when something is that, uh, you know, it's interesting because you, you said that you thought they came at the same time, and I'll get back to the, the, the question, but um, still, the skill set that you have, did you ever think about what else you might have done with it? Because it's interesting, you said earlier, a couple different times you've said not to get all intellectual about it or not to outsmart myself. And, you know, something I, I noticed the night, the night that I met you, uh, the first night we met, I remember leaving and saying to Amy, oh, Mario, who I was, you know, always a fan of your restaurants and spent a lot of time in them and we had mutual friends. I said, oh, I, I never knew Mario. He's one of the smartest guys walking around New York City. And subsequently, you know, all your friends know that and they, they say it. And that's not to compliment you. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it seems to me that in, in, in the public sphere, you've made a conscious choice to connect emotionally, primarily. You right. want to connect emotionally and with story. And I think, you know, if, if I had your IQ, I'd walk around with a T-shirt that had the IQ <laughs> on it instead of like, you know, a fake Van Halen Women and Children First T-shirt. I mean, uh, how conscious a choice is it? And you're going to say it's not conscious, but here's the story. There's, there's a lot of smarts. There's a lot of smart people out there. Fundamentally, there are two categories of smart people. There are Smart people that want you to know how smart they yes. are, and they make sure they tell you. And there are smart people that because you're sitting with them, they feel smarter too. And they, you, you share the smarts because you're inquisitive without being the last word. And that's what I've always wanted, and that's how I keep learning. Because I'm never telling anybody that, I mean, certainly I'll tell you, a boiling point of water is 212 at sea level. Yes. There's no question about that. It's undisputable. But other than basic facts of science, there are no facts. There is interpretations. And... and I think why people think I'm smart, and it's probably a, a lot more than I really am smart, but it's because I make them feel good about their own smart and that their own smart is never categorically under a roof of smart maximum. Yes. It's like we're always something to learn. There is always someone interesting to talk to with a different perspective that may lead you down a mouse hole that will take you to another level of understanding in your mind about anything as mundane as boiling point of water or as smart as the way... Porcini mushrooms grow in, in, in cahoots with oak trees in the particular part of Emilia Romagna that they do. Right. You're also, that, that makes com complete sense. Um, but it seems that, you know, you're one of the most well-read, I mean, how many books a week do you, do you read? I try to read one book a week. And if I can get another one in, I squeeze it in. But it depends on what I'm reading. N no matter what. Uh, Almost no matter what. And what are your favorite kinds of things to read? I like... Not experimental edgy, but I mean, I'll read edgy uh, experimental fiction. I like fiction, and then I'll read nonfiction when something occurs to me that I'm going to like it. I'm going to read Gates' book in the next couple of weeks, and it'll be an interesting thing to see. Which one? The Bill, Ga Bill Gates' new book? No. Or uh, the defense guy. What was, his what was his first name? Robert Gates? Robert Gates. Oh, yeah, yeah. He just did a, oh, yeah, no, did I know. a, yeah. a, a very seemingly interesting kind of tell-all autobiography that I'd well, love yeah, to read, which he, I have picked knocked, up. Uh, he knocked the president a little bit. Yeah, in, well, in, that's in part the of the book. story. And I look forward to seeing because I like candor more than I like uh, practice. Sure, yeah. I always thought Stephanopoulos' book was really a yeah. brave thing, even yeah. though they were an annoyed with him for it. Right. But you don't tend to bring that stuff out in your public appearances that much. Right. On television, you don't... You don't use that stuff in the way that other people in your position might. And I, I well, guess it's because you... I'm rarely asked questions like that. I'm more like, so what are you making for us today? And it's like Bippy the Clown jumps up and makes a couple of crabs and some spaghetti. And I'm completely fine with that role. Like, hey, Bippy, what are you going to show us today? I'm like, uh, how about a sandwich, Bob? And there, and there I make a sandwich. It's, it's okay. That's my job. Right, no, which is awesome. And right. that's how we all, right. you know, we saw Molto Mario and right. all of us said, oh, this guy seems like a great guy to hang around with. And boy, would I like to, you know, eat that pasta. Right. Um, but I, to me, there's something about the, I don't want to say the fear. I think it's important to you not to be an, an elitist. Absolutely. I want to be on everybody's club, but I don't necessarily have to be a member in fine standing. I would just like to know where the club is and every now and then drop in up because I enjoy that. that for me, learning is as much about books as it is about just listening and breathing. And as much as I can listen, and the more I can possibly hear, the better off I'm going to be. And that's, you know, that's always my New Year's resolution. Close your mouth just 10 seconds more every minute and see if you can listen just a little bit more. That's definitely going to be my new resolution because I could use to do that too. It's funny, Pen uh, Pendulado. I've been uh, I'm going to. I've been emailing now. Finally, I'm very excited. Have, yes, introduced you guys via email. 
But he uh, uh, always says, and he's uh, an extraordinarily bright, fascinating no guy. Question. And he always says, uh, he's just, he knows any room he walks into, there's somebody smarter. And maybe there's five people right. who are because they're smarter about something else. Right. And if he can get in there and find it, he'll leave more in, enriched in a way. You can breathe in the knowledge that, in fact, maybe you got something that day, which would be a great day. I would love that. Well, yeah, that's what's so great. But that's why you got to shut up a little bit more. Like, you know, for me, I just have to, because my nature, and you can ask my wife about this. She'll tell you a hundred times. My nature in, in an inquisitive moment, the tone I use in discussing what I perceive to be the variables often closes those variables for so many people listening to me because of the confidence of my tone. When, in fact, what I'm really trying to say is I wish I knew more about this. But my, what my wife says it sounds like is I know everything about this. Why don't you shut the f*** up? And I'm like, honey, I'm trying not to say that because I don't know everything about this but because of my tone apparently that's how some people back down on me well your tone is like served you well and so when you have these when you have these people that you recognize uh because you know when you think about coaches i think about what pete carroll did in, in seattle i know congratulations by the thank way thank you very much I know you I'm feel proud like it was your proud and proud your victory as well um but i i thought to myself you know there's something analogous to to you running the thing you do deciding who to promote when you know uh making this guy the captain of his own team. Right. And do you see an, an analog in, in that way? To In the sporting world? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're developing a team that goes into battle every day. That's pretty much a game all the time. You know the rules, and you want to make sure that you perform at your maximum. You know, I didn't realize much about Pete Carroll until the last two months, and apparently everyone in the NFL wants to play on his team. And I just never thought, coming from USC, that that guy would be that guy. Like, I don't see college ball, particularly at USC, as this joyous, sharing intellectual experience. I see it more of an angry group of guys barely escaping the wrath of their coach. But subsequently, I've been reading a little bit about it, a lot because of the Kerm, the Sherman kerfuffle. And you're like, whoa, wow, I saw that guy really blow up. He didn't manage his, his moment that well. But you then you look into it, and oh, yeah, here's a guy with a 3.8 out of Stanford. You know, that doesn't mean anything, anything. But it certainly means he went to class and he paid attention. And, 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 and the, in that same sense, Carroll seems to be the object of many players' love now because he's such a good team builder and such a great kind of guy to have on your side. He makes you feel good about the decisions. He allows you to understand that you're taking risks. He allows you not to hit it every time, but knows that it's a, a much larger playing field than just the day that you're playing that game. And that's why you look at the Seattle defense and they're flawless. I mean, they, they've been told to take those risks. They've been told to hit early. They've been told to be on them like that in a way that somehow changed the way they play. Peyton didn't get, he didn't get a first down in the first half. That was unbelievable. Like the most productive guy of all football of all time. The record of offense was shut down by these guys. And it's got a lot to do with their own personal capability, but it's got a heck of a lot to do with that coaching team. And so how do you manifest that stuff when you're, when you're identifying somebody as, okay, that person can be a star within my organization? Well, the trick is to let them be what they are. Like, tell them, listen, this is, this is going to be you. You're going to be the quarterback here. So let's see. I, first of all, I make sure I back them in retrospect, I make sure that I let them make their own mistakes. And I, and I don't kill them for it. I say, how would we have handled this better? How could we have made this um, disappointed, angry customer happier than just saying, I'm sorry, we can't do anything to that. What can I get instead? How could you have gone out to the table and said, listen, I see that you thought this was way too spicy or you're very disappointed in some experience. How can I make this into a win? And that's, you know, Something I learned at the Four Seasons Hotels is that if you're handed a, a sour moment, the worst thing you can do is just say, yeah, well, that's how it is. The best thing you can do is turn it into a win. And in the middle somewhere, at least some acknowledgement is going to be where a lot of people would go. And that's a lot of middle executives who somehow acknowledge it and say, you know, I'm really sorry. But to make it into a win by turning that disappointed, angry, and because of their excellence, their passion. If they're really mad about a dish, it's because they're passionate about stuff. And fundamentally, fundamentally, what we realize is when a restaurant customer comes into the restaurant and they've had a bad year or a bad week on the market or their wife doesn't like them or their kid just left on college in a hood or, or whatever, whatever thousand reasons they come in and they're not at their, their maximum of joy. If we could just give them something to drink, something to eat, or a nap, we could make them better instantly. And so we know that we're not going to give them a nap, but if we can get them something quickly that says, we like you, here, come sit down. We have a table for you. Here's water. Here's a little bruschetta. Can I get you a glass of wine? If 
if at that point they're still angry, we're, we just got our work cut out for us. It's not like, oh, shit, here comes a grumpy dude. We're never going to be able to make this guy happy. It's now let's see what we can do. Let's ask him, what, what can we get for you? I want spaghetti with clams, but I want a lot of Parmesan cheese on it. And we're like, well, we don't like to put Parmesan cheese on it, but if you do, we're going to bring it to you. And all this, you know, like you, you acquiesce to what they want without rolling over and playing the cooch dog. But, because you don't think that that's, um, oh, uh, uh, somehow you're able to see that, it seems to me, as... Um, a victory, not a loss. And some people think that they're the the customers are on the other side. Right. And 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 I'll tell you what happened. There's a a couple of guys. One of the reasons that Bobo was famous was because we actually said no. Like it was a restaurant when they said, "Can you turn that music?" No, this is how we like it. Right. Um, uh, can I have this sauce with that noodle and this thing on the side? And we're like, "No, we want you to try what's on the menu." You could, in all of my restaurants, take something out of any dish that you want, provided we can take it out. But you can't add back in because we've spent years practicing and practicing this and making it something really, really special. That's really well done when I do it. But when I have a restaurant in Las Vegas and I have someone who's just saying no in the wrong way. Not no because this is our experience. It's no that's because Mario doesn't want it that way. It's not no that's helping. That's a no that's negative. So you have to be careful who you give your marching orders to because that no personally for me has a lot of resounding depth. But a no from someone who looks like he's just got out of culinary school or just got out of Cornell management school, he's not saying no or she's not saying no in the right way. So you have to be careful when when the team moves out of Constantinople. And that's where that's where it gets a little tricky. So you have to back down a little bit of your edginess in some of your more distant outposts because you don't want it to be taken wrong and you're not there to make it right if it goes wrong. Well, you know, when I'll tell you how you and if you do that right for your customer, you have a customer for life right. and then you have them being messianic for you. Right. They're out there spreading. They're saying, you know what? I went in there. I had a, a, an okay meal. And then the next time I came back, it was just right. And now we go back in there and we know the lingo. And as long as we know the lingo, they feel like everything on the we inside. Want, and we're supportive. And we can't wait till the next soft seal crab season. Well, I'll tell you when you, and this is how you've spread your message. When Bobo was at the beginning, may I, you know, when nobody could get a reservation in New York, uh, I guess this was probably 2000, let's say it was. Uh, my Amy and I were invited there one night for the first time, and someone had gotten a reservation for us, and it was six people. And the wife of somebody I was with, and this is when you guys were saying no, beef cheek ravioli for the first time. What does that mean? You were really changing the, pa the palates in New York City. And the, the, the wife of one of the guys I was with had just been visiting her family in Philadelphia. And somebody at the table had never had a Philly cheesesteak, and she knew this. And she brought Philly cheesesteaks from Pat's, from Philly, to Bobo. And we sat at the table, and I remember being so mortified when she brought them out of the bag. Because I, I thought, we're in New York City, we're, we're at this restaurant, uh, and she took the cheesesteaks out, and your waitstaff came over, and I was sure we were going to get tossed out of the freaking restaurant. And they said, w w what's going on? And she said, I just came from Philly, and these people have never had them, and I have to just... And I saw on the person's face, I can make these people have a great moment, or I can make them like, feel like rubes. Exactly. I can make them feel like total rubes. And right. she said, what a great idea. And put them on plates and serve them to us right. with your appetizers right. as an extra thing. And, you know, you just wanted to come right back. Right. Because instead of making us feel foolish, you made us feel smart and great. Right. For Smart. adding to our experience. Right. Smart. Because it was right. To bring cheesesteaks to someone from Philadelphia who'd never had a cheesesteak was a genius move of hospitality. Right. And because they're so unique, although they weren't perfect because they'd shipped a while, they were still a unique and delicious dish. Right. And somehow you and we, we assessed that you weren't there to just have your cheesesteaks and order dessert. We knew you were there for dinner. That was what that waitress, waiter, wait person's job was. Are these here just to sit here in this hot restaurant and have a glass of wine? No, because you were there to eat. And, then, then, and the wait person assessed that, which is why we're a lot more flexible. If you were there to save $50 on your appetizers and, and, and change the experience so that everyone around you is like, what the f*** are they doing here? You weren't. You were there to do the right thing. And the, the, the one lady who maybe wasn't used to sitting in that restaurant or didn't give a damn for that matter anyway, did the right thing. I'm glad my staff re, re, did the right. right thing. But so a place like Babo, and I just have a few more things, but a place like Babo where it's so much your heart, how do you empower, but you can't be there every single day. Neither you and I mean you and Joe get there a lot, but you're not there every single day. I'm probably there six days a week, but often not during service. But often not during service. Maybe I'm there in the afternoon. Right. Just talking, like sitting down, sitting with family at family meal, sitting down with the whole staff and just kind of talking about balsamic vinegar that day. So when I was there the other night, 
uh, and Taylor Swift came into the restaurant. Yes. When someone like that comes into your restaurant and you now are, you're away, you're doing something, you're at the Neil Young concert right. that night. Do they call you or you trust oh, I them that they're going to handle it? No, I knew in advance. And But they would call me if, if well, if, they would if, call me when any of my friends came in that they didn't expect. They will call me if you come in. Right. And and, and, and my answer is always the same. Don't give them too much stuff. Don't swarm around them and try to protect them if people are going to go up and try to bother their experience, which our staff is very comfortable with. But also keep in mind, New Yorkers and Los Angelinos are used to having famous people around them, so they don't jump up and yell and try to take pictures from a distance. It's pretty calm in New York, so it's not that hard to help a celeb enjoy a fleeting moment of kind of a cocoon in our world. But you're comfortable now. That's true, but you're comfortable now if you're not there knowing... At all your restaurants, they're gonna they're gonna handle it because you've chosen you and Joe have chosen these people. And we've and we've spent time talking about how important allowing people to have a good time on both the people that want to watch Bill Clinton sit there and Bill Clinton sitting there. You want to make sure that they both get what they came there for. And you can be darn sure that if Bill Clinton sits down at a table at six thirty and people were just about to get their dessert menu because they got there at five thirty, they're gonna sit there till he leaves. <laughs> Because cause they're watching Bill Clinton. It's like going to the zoo. There it is. It's the wild, woolly, whoopie-schnapper. And it's in its natural habitat, honey. Look at this. And everyone looks at him. And he's a remarkably great guy. And he's having a good time. And, and if you wait long enough, he will come shake your hand at every single restaurant he goes to. He says hello to everybody because he knows that's what people want. Oh, yeah. I was once at a restaurant in the, in the city. And Clinton and Springsteen were both sitting there. Right. And the whole Springsteen time, doesn't necessarily get up and shake everyone's hand because well, he's busy. But I mean, and, and, and we also, were taking bets on who would get up to say hello to who and? in that situation. Well, you know, but who do you think got up? I'm going to bet Bill got up. Bruce. Bruce did? It was the president of the United States. Well, who was seated first? They were both. So they were in opposite sides of the restaurant. All right. And they were both seated. And I guess somebody whispered that the president was there. Oh, okay. And uh, and Bruce got up and walked over. And, you know, it was amazing because everyone tries to – it's New York City, like you said. Right. Everyone tried to act really so cool. cool. Right, exactly. And you could feel the restaurant wanting to stand up and stand up and <laughs> Oh, my applaud. God. The boss is saying hello to the president. <laughs> yeah. The boss is walking across right. the restaurant. That's great. Now, you see those moments and you manufacture those moments, you know, all the time. So just a couple of last questions. Um, in, in – are there any people who are sort of leaders like you that you've modeled yourself after, either restaurateurs or people in life where you've thought, oh, I've picked this up from this person consciously, or is it all by osmosis? I, I don't know. I, I think in, in in the sense that when you see something really good done, you try to take away from it. But also when you see something really bad done, you can try to take yeah. away from it. And I would say that as much as I've learned from the good, I've also learned from seeing the bad on how to make sure to treat Everybody, including your staff and, and including your customers. I, I think that it, over 20 years watching a guy like Danny Meyer, who, who I originally thought was just a goody two-shoes, whose restaurants were good but not really great, now I understand what his excellence is, is that he really puts the same weight on guest satisfaction as staff satisfaction. And it took me a while to come to that because I just assumed since we're on the trenches, we're going to be satisfied just to get through with it. But now with 2,500 employees... We really have to carefully manage to make sure that my team feels good about where they are and their flexibility and their upward mobility and their opportunities for improving themselves. As important as making sure that my guests are satisfied because with a satisfied team, you stand a much better chance of having a satisfied I mean, you guest. do see that in your joints all the time. You right. see the way the people, uh, you know, manifest. Well, they're professionals. This, it used to be that a waiter was someone who was looking for an acting job. Now there are a lot of cooks and busboys and back waiters and wine professionals and bartenders and maitre d's and full-on captains and and the whole hierarchy that's what they're going to do for a living and they are rewarded handsomely for it and and it's because when they're really great it's they're like us like me and you they're sharing the joy they're enjoying the education they're part of the experience they can back it up when they need to they can get in if they have to and it's you know it's very much a it's a very full contact sport to be in the the hospitality industry no question so you know um there's this great line in big night which to me is the best for me the best movie about food uh ever i do with stanley tucci uh, Mm -hmm. who wrote it you know that line uh, ian holm at the end of it uh, says to to Tucci, he's talking about his brother who's a great chef, and he says, you know, he's an artist, and Ian Holm talks about himself, and he says, I'm a businessman, so I'm everything I need to be, and he says, you know, what are you? Uh, I mean, do you, which, do you consider yourself an artist, a businessman, or just the whole thing, really? 
I would say I hopefully started as an artist. Hopefully I've evolved into a better businessman. But I think above all, I'm a human. And then I'm a category. And I think the largest breakdown of that in the 21st century yes. is people misperceiving the first and fundamental role of the human is to be a human and to be a fair and delightful human to all humans, not just the humans on the Cook side of the field or on the American side of the field or on the North African side of the field. And and if you can become a human first and look at it with that kind of empathy, sympathy and pride, then I think a lot of things might be able to change for us. Well, that's a perfect place to end. Uh, Mario, thank you for being here with me on The Moment. Thanks for being my friend. And uh, watch Mario's television show, The Chew. Yes. Eat at one of his 400 restaurants <laughs> uh, all across this great big world. Or join my team. Join the Vitali team. You can follow Mario at Mario Vitali on Twitter. On Twitter. I'm Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And uh, everybody, have a great day and, and try really hard to be human. Uh, I'm going to try the best that I can. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.